0: It is a wonderful day, wonderful day, wonderful day. And today we're going to look at the book of Joel. Bet you that wasn't a surprise, because hopefully you're keeping up to date with the chapel emails that went out, and I'm hoping you did your homework and you read the book of Joel ahead of time. Look at you, most of you are going, what? All right, we'll, we'll read a lot of it today anyways. So book of Joel, if you don't know where that is, take your Bible, split it down the middle, and you're getting close. (laughs) <laughs> You're getting close. If you don't have one of these in your Bible that automatically flips to the book of Joel, well then, I'm sorry. I got this thing, it just, it always goes to the right book when I want it to. All right. You guys are blessed. You got me for two weeks back to back. That wasn't on purpose, but it happened that way, so. All right, so today we're going to look at the first half of Joel, so we'll do about a chapter and a half today. And then next week we'll look at the second uh, chapter and a half, all right? Uh, Joel is a minor prophet. Now, of this book of Joel, we know very little about the author and very little about the time that it was written. We know a lot of the prophets that we have in the Bible. We know who the author is. We know his extensive background. We also know what period of time because he usually describes the king that he's, you know, um, preaching under, all right? But in the book of Joel, we have very little indication of when and who Joel is, all right? But we do know that he's very familiar with the Old Testament writings. He's very familiar with uh, Amos, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, Nahum, because he quotes from them. So obviously he's very well versed and very studied in the, the word of the Lord. All right. So today uh, we are going to look at again at Joel. And Joel is unique in that in all the other, most of the other prophets, well when the prophets are talking to the lamb, uh, land of Israel, what are they typically writing about? You guys have messed up. Here's how you've messed up. In explicit detail, here's how you've messed up. And here's what God expects. All right, here's the, here's the plan that's going to come down for you from God. Here's the, um, the judgment. Here is the consequences that God is going to unfold because of your wrongdoings. And they're laid out explicitly. Um, but in the book of Joel, well, Joel assumes that the people have been well-read in the prophets before him. So they already know what they've been doing wrong. Job does not go into detail any explicit sin. He just says, your sins. Why? Because the prophets before him have said it multiple, multiple times. So he's just reinstating the fact that, guys, we've made some mistakes, and so we've got to fix them now. All right? So you will not find here any explicit sin. God, you have been an adulterous people. You have, you know, you will not find him saying that you have uh, gone after false gods. You will not find him saying you've gone after foreign women. You will not find him saying that you have desecrated his temple with false worship. Alright? You won't find those things. Alright? It's just a blanket statement of all of Israel's uh, falling shorts because all the prophets before him have mentioned in detail already as it is. Alright? And you'll find as we get reading through here that there's two parallel poems going on. There's a poem about a day of the Lord that has already come. A judgment that has already come on Israel. And we'll see that in chapter 1. But then there's a picture of a judgment to come in the future, a day of the Lord that's still to come, that I believe has not come yet, and that's what we're going to look at mostly next week, is what is this plan, what is the resultant plan that God still has for His nation Israel, and what lessons can we take away from that, and some characteristics about the Lord our God. There's some really great verses in here. If you're an underliner, if you're someone who likes to underline key sections of Scripture, there's a couple great sections here that we're going to look at today that describe the characteristic And the nature of our God and who He is. Okay? So, without further ado, let's get into it. All right? So, I guess we'll start reading in chapter 1, and we'll read, not all of it, but we'll start reading the first 11 verses, okay? The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days, or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and that your children tell to their children, and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched away from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it all away, leaving their branches white, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning and those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up and the oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. And you can continue reading on, and it's more of the same thought that we are in great despair in this land. Everything is gone. And uh, before we continue on, I'll remind you to open a word of prayer. Commit this time to the Lord. Lord our God, we give you thanks for your word, for it is true. And it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And Lord, we know that Your Word is living. That there is nothing fallible in this Word that it is perfect. And even though it was written thousands of years ago, it remains true today. So we pray that as we open into it and look into it through the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You would illuminate the Scripture to us. Help us to learn and grow and know more about Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Your great love for us. In, his son, in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. So we see here what I take to be a literal account of what's what's happened in in, uh, the land of Israel. It seems like a great swarm of locusts. We don't really have them around here. Uh, Grasshoppers, massive grasshoppers, have come through and stripped everything clean. All the produce, all the trees, everything. No more green left. Eating everything up. He says here, has anything like this in the time of your fathers, in your time, anything in your father's time, anything in your grandfathers, your forefathers, has anything like this ever happened in Israel? Has judgment like this ever come upon Israel? And he would be back, oh yeah, 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 I remember a story like this. Exodus, right? The great exodus. Wasn't there locusts in the great exodus? Well, yeah, there was, right? Remember when God said to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. And Moses says, if you don't let my people go, a great swarm of locusts will come and eat everything. And sure enough, they did. But did that affect Israel? No, that was a judgment against the Egyptians. See, the Lord, I will right, we'll see here, we see multiple times, in his, if you read through it ahead of time, you'll see that multiple times in here, there's this theme of the day of the Lord pops up. All right? And in the day of the Lord, God comes down to judge evil and at the same time bring salvation to his people through it. Okay? And we saw that in Egypt, that God came down, And he judged the evil nation of Egypt. And through that set his people free. But this time, it's a little bit different. The nation of Israel had been warned. And they continually walked away from God. And God sent some judgment on them. And he sent this massive wave of locusts through the land. It says the great locusts and the small locusts and the old and the young locusts. And they ate everything up. And it's all gone. Um, God... He is a mighty God, and he can take the pride of man, the strength of man, and make it all disappear with the smallest little insect. He can take the little, little insect in this world, a grasshopper, a whoop doo right, under my foot, but with that little insect can wipe away the pride of man and put us into desperation. Because now all the food is gone. Everything is gone from them. And you think today, well, well, in a modern era of technology and where we live today, that wouldn't affect us at all. Uh, guys, listen. If God wanted to, if God wanted to uh, affect us in a great way, he could do it with a very little thing. All right, Even if he came through in today's world with a little locust or something and ate all the crops in America, we'd be in trouble real quick. All right? Our grocery stores wouldn't have food for us anymore. So take a second and put yourself in their place. They're in despair right now because they have no food left. And everything is about to die. And Joel recognizes that we have a big problem here, guys. And You've been warned about this and he's going to call the people in a minute to repent. So we have this great plague that has now come upon the people and he's drawing Israel's attention to the fact that, guys, this wasn't for no reason... This was a planned event by God in judgment of your sins. This wasn't just a coincidence, guys, that happened. Alright? This is of God, planned by God, to get your eyes to open up, to realize that wait a minute, we've messed up here. Alright? We have trespassed against the Lord. And Joel, as we'll well, let's go ahead and now let's read uh, verse thirteen. All right. He is calling the people now to repent. Hey guys, I'm waking you up here. This event has happened, or is currently happening. Time for us to react in a proper manner. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you ministers, before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of God. Declare a holy fast. Call the sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, Alas. Sorry. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like the destruction of the Almighty. Has not the food been eaten and cut off from before your very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has been dried up. And you continue reading on about how the land is in great despair. And and Joel's making a call. Hey, priests. Hey, leaders of the people. People yourselves. Come out. It's time for us to repent. We need to acknowledge before God that we have trespassed His ways. We have let Him down. We have sinned against Him. And we need to call on Him for help. But before we continue on and look at chapter 2 and what's coming in there, I just want to point out a couple little things here, all right? In in verse 3, Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generations. What's he doing here? He's saying, listen, guys, this event has happened. It's real. It's really going on. I want you to tell your kids about it. Why does he do that? Why does he say tell your kids about it, tell your kids' kids and their kids' kids, and for every generation on Remind them of this day and this event that happened. Why is he doing that? Well, this great plague has just happened, and if you don't know history, you're what bound to repeat it. I said that's what they told me in school. I don't know if it really worked at all. Um, but are we as parents? Maybe not necessarily parents. Okay, if you're a person older than me, then I look up to you as a parent to me. Okay. Tell me of the things of the past so that I can learn from them. All right, Parents, do you tell your kids the good, the bad, and the ugly? All right? I'm not meaning about the Lord, because there is no bad and ugly about the Lord. But I mean this. Have you sat down with your children, when they're at the age that they can understand, and described to them the great things that God has done for you? Have you done that? Have you talked to them personally about the, the ways, the specific ways that God has blessed you? Have you done that? I remember times that my parents recounted stories to me when God really came through and did a, a great blessing to them. All right? And I, myself, if, if you can't identify in your own life how God has blessed you, then you need to sit down and start thinking real hard. Because I can count, I can, to my children, my God has blessed me with a, a great wife. Well, that, that's special. He has also blessed me with a home. I, that, I can tell you right now, the, the story of my house was of the Lord. My job 100% of the Lord. All right, A lot of my possessions are of the Lord. There's a lot of times that my God has come through for me in my little life here on earth and proven Himself to be true to me. We should share those with our children. And it validates to them that the God we follow is real. He's not just some paper words that exist here. He's a real life God. Have I ever described to them the bad? Now, Not that God is bad, but that in the tough times of my life with lost loved ones or maybe sickness, when difficult times in my life have come up, can I share with them how God came through? How God healed our broken hearts? How God was faithfully there when we thought He wasn't? Have we ever ever shared those stories with our kids? And then the ugly. This is, might be the hard ones, because this one's our pride. Have you ever shared your children stories where you may have screwed up? And God has caused you to repent of those things, to ask for forgiveness of those things, and He's restored you. Those would be great lessons for our kids. Alright? I, I, I want my children to know some of the mistakes I've made so that they don't repeat them. Or mistakes that I've seen in other people that I don't want them to repeat them. That's exactly what Joel is telling the people right here. Listen, you as a nation, parents, wake up. We do not want this happening to our children again. Teach them what has happened. Tell them exactly how you've messed up. And thankfully, there's a God out there that cares about us enough to cause us to come into a position where we recognize our sin. And you know what? Sometimes consequences hurt. And the consequences of all their food disappearing, that hurts. Physically, that hurts. And I want you to tell your children about it so that they in the future do not make the same mistakes. Is that phrase ever come up in Scripture before? A, a lot. A lot comes up that way. In Exodus, I want you to tell your children... Teach them the stories of the Exodus so that it is never forgotten. Are there stories in your family's lineage of how God has come through, how God has done a mighty work in your family? And is there any stories that you could pass on to your children? If there are, do it. Pass on the stories. Teach them how our God, and show them in our lives how our God is a real living God. He's is not a dead God. He's not just some person that we come here and pray to and sing to on a Sunday morning he is really active in our lives and he wants to be a part of their life too and having a firsthand account of that in your own life parents or even elders anybody anybody who's older than me all right share those with me please all right if uh, some of the some of the things that are the greatest blessing in my life is listening to those in our assembly who have had a I'm not a variety of background, history, stories. I'm, I'm stuck on a word. But you've had a, 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 large, a large array of experiences in your life. Not necessarily all good ones. But when I look at what the God has done in your life, and you've shared that story with me, it really causes me to be blessed and challenges me more to live for God, not to make the same mistakes. Because I've seen what God has brought you through and how much you've learned from it. and, that's, and It's a good thing. So, please... do that, all right? The second thing, I I just want to point out before we continue on. In verse 9, it says, grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. What's the significance in that? What is is that really talking about here? Well, the grain offering, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, teaches about the many offerings that God uh, requires of the people. The grain offering is one of those free will offerings. Okay, The grain offering is this. This is not to cover sin. There is no blood being spilt here. This is you bringing to the Lord as a sacrifice some of the best of your wheat, some of the best of your barley, some of the best of your grains, as a thank you to the Lord for providing for you, and as a recognition of your dependence upon Him. In the 40 years that the people were traveling through the, the desert, Do you think the grain offering happened very frequently? Do you think that was an easy sacrifice to make to the Lord while wandering through the desert for 40 years? Guys, they were always on the move. If they're always on the move, how do you have a farm to grow crops? Now, at times they were in place for a few years, but they were always on the move. Coming across grain and barley, not easy to do. And if you had some, it was costly. It was precious to you. The grain offering during the 40 years in the desert represented, if you came with one, it was of great cost to you personally. When they came to worship, it was a sign of, God, here is something that cost me dearly, and I want to give it to you and thank you. And in recognizing I am fully dependent on you. When we come here on Sunday morning. Does our worship cost us anything? Now, John Clifford just last week was talking about, and the week before that was talking about the cost of being grateful to our God. Whether it be time, whether it be financial. He was looking at primarily financial, all right. But does our worship to our God cost us anything? It should. It should. True gratefulness should cost you. So we've seen so far, this great wave of locusts has come through. Wipe the land clean. The people in despair, they have no food. Joel is calling out to them, hey, people, let's go repent. Let's pick up a chapter 2 now. Alright, we're going to start a picture all right, of a future event that we'll study in much more depth next week. There's a few things I want to pull out of here. All right, <coughs> Chapter 2, we're going to read through half the chapter. Blow the trumpet in Zion, "'Sound the alarm of my holy hill. "'Let all who live in the land tremble. for "'The day of the Lord is coming. "'It is close at hand, "'a day of darkness and gloom, "'a day of clouds and blackness, "'like dawn spreading across the mountains. "'A large army, a mighty army comes, "'such as never was of old, "'nor ever will be in the ages to come. "'Before them fire devours, "'behind them a flame blazes. "'Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden.' "'Behind them a desert waste. "'Nothing escapes them. "'They have the appearance of horses. "'They gallop like the cavalry. "'With a noise like that of the chariots, "'they leap over the mountaintops. "'Like the crackling fire consuming stubble, "'like the mighty army drawn up for battle. "'At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. "'Every face turns pale. "'They charge like warriors. "'They scale the walls like soldiers. "'They all march in line.' not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. They march straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves, and they enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars are no longer shining. The Lord thunders at the hand of his army. His hands are beyond. Sorry, his forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great; it is dreadful. Who can endure it? So we see here another picture of what I believe a coming time for Israel, a great day of the Lord. Now let's pause for a minute here. Great day of the Lord. How is Lord spelled here? Capital L, capital O. Capital R and D. That should say something to you right there, right? If you have studied through Scripture and if you've been to our Bible studies throughout the years, you know that through the Old Testament, alright, there are many different ways to describe God. You have God, Elohim. You have capital Lord, alright, meaning Yahweh, Jehovah. And then you have lowercase, well, capital L, lowercase ORD, which means what? Adonai, master. Alright? And in this case, who's it talking to? Is talking about Lord, capital L, capital O, R, and D, right? Referring to Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean about God? It's one of the names of God. What does it describe about the God, our God? All right. Well, Elohim, when you see the word God in the Old Testament and in the Bible, what does that refer to? The Hebrew word is Elohim. That means the Creator. The Creator God. And we find that in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Where does the word Lord really arrive, and we get an understanding of who He is? Where does this Elohim? Not sorry, Elohim. Where does Yahweh and Jehovah really, really get those names from? Where does that Hebrew word kind of first show up in Scripture, where we get an understanding of who this God is? Anybody? Come on. Moses and the burning bush. Remember, Moses is there before the Lord. We're going to look at an account of Moses in a minute. And God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. He says, I am that I am. That's one of the places we first find Yahweh come up. Yahweh, I am. I am the self-existent one. No one ever made me. I never have a beginning. All of us in this room, we have a beginning. We also have an end, unfortunately. But fortunately, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the beginning to our eternal life. All right? But we have a beginning. I don't know if you've ever done this mind game before, but try and think back as far as you possibly can in time. Okay? I can think back 100 years. My grandma was wrong. Okay. 500 years ago, our nation was just being born. Okay? Kind of cool. Keep thinking back. Think back. Think on Adam and Eve. Okay, I've gone, what, six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 years maybe? Keep thinking back back What was before that what was be- you keep asking yourself what was before that and your mind just starts to go because ah, you can 't handle it it's our minds are in, are finite we have a limit to what our brains can handle God doesn't he has been around forever See, as a physicist, I like to know cause and effect cause and effect cause and effect well what's the cause that made God? there is none he's been around no one ever created him he's just always been. And, and I, the, the harder I try and rationalize that, the more my brain hurts. I can't. That's what Yahweh describes. I am the self-existent one. I am a personal God who wants to get to know you as an individual. I want to be a part of your life. So we see here, this is the day of Yahweh. The day of the self-existent God who wants to have a relationship with you but is also a God who will not allow evil to reign. He will judge it. In the picture that we just read, what do we see? We saw a story of locusts sweeping across the land, wiping everything clean. We kind of have a parallel poem a picture of symbolism of locusts coming, but the locust that is now coming, it's marching in a military format. They're riding horses. They're marching together in unison. It's a military type of thing. And it's actually sort of like, this is God's army coming, where it's no longer locusts. That was a picture of what's to come. There's a time coming where God is going to send judgment And it's going to wipe the land clean. It says the the land looked like the Garden of Eden ahead of it, but behind it, what was it? Blaze. Nothing left. Desert land. Has the event that we just read about occurred yet? Has the sun ceased to shine yet in man's history? Well, we do know a period of time when the sky was darkened. And that was at the cross, right? That was at the cross. The cross, does it look like this here describes the time that Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross? To me, it doesn't really describe that at all. So in in modern man's history, the event that we have read about, which I believe to be a literal event coming, a judgment coming, does not appear like it has actually occurred yet. When it will occur... Well, that's for the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. We're going to get there next week. So come back. Stay tuned. All right? But it seems like this has not yet happened. The day of the Lord is dreadful. Who can endure it? This is not something you want to be around here for. What does Joel cry out to the people after this? What is the Lord's response here? All right? The Lord does a little response to the people here. Pick up in chapter 2, verse 12 i want to spend a portion of our time right here. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, He relents from standing calamity. Who knows? He may even turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. God is calling out to His people here to do what? To repent. But how are they doing that? You see, when mankind wants to repent, when we want to show that we're sad, what what do we find in chapter 1? What did Joel say to do? Put on sackcloth. What is that? Sackcloth? Well... It's not really a practice that we do today. I've never seen any of you do it. I've never done it myself. Um, basically, you strip all your clothes off and put on a burlap bag, a potato sack. Uh, it was like a clothing made out of goat's hair. Really uncomfortable, itchy, scratchy. Cover yourself in that and wear that around to show God how sincere you are that you're willing to allow your body to be physically unpleasant to be annoyed, to be tormented in kind of way, to show God how sincere you are. You know what they'd also do? Take ashes and dump ashes on their head and rub their whole body in ashes. God, look at me. I am in such pity and woe and despair that I'm willing to do this to myself to show you in the world how grieved I am. We don't quite do that today, but... There are other things that we do do as a human race. We do put on our sweatpants and go hide and lock ourselves in the bedroom. Okay, um, every one of us is unique. Okay. God does not want us to put on a show. There are those of us who, when we are sorry for things, we put on a show. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really sorry. I actually mean it this time. I really am. Right. We we know how we can put on a show and fake our sorry. They fake our repentance. God's like, I, I see right through that, guys. I'm not blind here. All right? I actually see what's going on inside your heart. So he says, Listen, don't tear your clothes. Don't do anything outwardly. What do I really care about? God has always cared about the heart. Rend your heart, he says. Break your hearts. Break your hearts. Rend, tear your hearts for me. And then I'll truly know that you are sorry, repentful of what you've done. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why does he say that? See, if I were God, it's a good thing I'm not, because uh, the people on this earth, Squish them out, done. Start over again. I can't take them. I can't take myself sometimes. Just, just, just pinch it and you're done. It's a little squish. Who is God? What's his nature like? What is this character? God, it says right here, and this is God speaking. He is gracious and compassionate. Amen! I am so thankful that my God is gracious. Because I wouldn't be here anymore. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Listen, I am not someone who is slow to anger. I am quick to anger. And I am not compassionate. And He is slow to anger and abounding in love. God desires to show mercy. God does not want to judge And He needs to, and He will. But He does not want to. God is a gracious God. He gives us things we do not deserve. He gives us so much that we do not deserve. And He loves to do it. He loves to do it. Are there any other sections in Scripture that parallel this idea that are earlier... Well, turn with me to Exodus 34. Alright? If you're someone who likes to underline, great section underline here. Exodus chapter 34. Remember that Moses went up to the mountain and brought back the Ten Commandments. What did Moses come back to see? He had just gotten God's law. The expectations of God. And he walks down the mountain and goes... What did they do while he was gone? He was gone for just a short time. They erected a golden calf. They're all bowing down to this golden calf now, worshiping it. And what supposed to do? He takes the tablets and smashes them all up. He's like, they cannot know the holiness of God because of what they're doing right now. They just walk so far away from the worshiping a fake cow, that they can't take it. He cleans house, goes back up on the mountain, and God gives them another set of the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there on the mountain, God gives him this little vision. Alright? Let's go to verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, remember, guys, capitalize here, Yahweh, Yahweh, is compassionate and gracious God. He is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What is God's name? He proclaims his name to Moses. How does God describe himself? Like when I got to describe myself as Brian, what kind of characteristics and things can I talk about? Loud, boisterous, annoying. All right, if you know me well, okay. <laughs> what does God say about himself? What describes him? Hey, you want to know who I am? This is who I am. I am the compassionate and the gracious God. I am the slow and anger God. I am the abounding in love God. I am the faithful God. I maintain love to thousands and forgiving witness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Our God will judge sin. He cannot ignore it. He is a holy God. And he is a righteous God. And he must, he is required to judge sin. Fortunately, He judged my sin once and for all. He judged (coughs) at the cross upon His Son. But to those who do not accept His Son, there will be a time coming, which we'll look at next week. There will be a time coming when God will judge their sins. And there will be consequences for that, unfortunately, for them. But our God desires to show mercy. My God's mercy is more powerful than His wrath, because He showed it to me. Now oh, He took out his wrath on his son, but in doing so, he spared my life. I want to look at second Corinthians chapter seven, looking at repentance real quick. Second Corinthians. We'll look at two verses about repentance, and then we'll wrap up. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the Apostle Paul speaking here, and uh, I guess we'll go to verse 8. Even if I cause you to sorrow by my letter, the previous letter that Paul wrote to the, the Corinthian church, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful, as God intended, and were not harmed in any way. But godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow leads to death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. This is one verse I, I really appreciated here was ten that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. See, God desires that all of us, some of us, God has to work a little harder at. He, needs you, he has to work a little harder to get your eyes open. But all of us, he desires for us to recognize that we have a problem, that we have trespassed his ways, that we have sinned against him. And we looked at this in a previous time that I, I mentioned, that God requires repentance for salvation. And repentance being that you acknowledge that God is who he is. That God is right. And that I have trespassed against him. And God, I was wrong. And you were right. And I need your salvation. And when you acknowledge before God that you were wrong and he is right, he accepts you with arms open wide and says, I love you. I always have loved you welcome into my family. Once you have done that, you are now part of God's family. And Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Speaking to the Pharisees here. All right, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you are someone who has repented of your sins, God, I've messed up. I need you. Save me. Forgive me, please. All right? you You've had that conversation. Now bear fruit. Don't bear fruit as a way to try and get salvation. Don't bear fruit as a way to get into heaven. Bear fruit because of what God has already done for you. On Friday night at Youth Group, there was a wonderful speaker there, and he shared this. I wasn't listening much, but I got this out of it. Citizens should act like citizens, not because they want to become citizens, but because they already are. All right? Let me break it down for you is this, right? Mac Williams should act like Mac Williams, not because they want to become Mac Williams, but because they already are Mac Williams. My children should be respectful. My family should be kind, considerate, listening, obedient. They should also be fun to hang out with. They should be loving and a pleasure to be around. They shouldn't be like that because they want to be part of my family. They should be like that because they already are my family. Christians, you ready? Don't try and act like a Christian. Don't try and please God. Don't try and do the Christian thing because you want to become a Christian. Do it because you are one. You're already in God's family. Do the things God asked you to do not to try to get into His family, but if you already are part of His family, do it because He saved you. Kind of what Joel is leading into here. Listen, you are God's people. Act like it. You have been called out by God. You are a special people. You are a special people. God says that multiple times to the Israelites. You are my chosen people. I have a special plan for you. Act like it. The same charge for us today. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess What? There's nothing you can do to get into His family. How do you get into His family? Repent. Why? Because that leads to salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You read that this morning. And it's actually in the next chapter. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. Nothing you've got to do to get into heaven except for believe. But once you are in His family, act like it. That's it. Why? Because He's done so much for you. Why not? He's called you out. He has saved you. He died for you. He gave up everything so that you might live. In return, just, just do what He asks. It's not that hard. Next week, we'll look at what are the future plans that God has for Israel? What does this great wave of locusts and military form look like? And how does God restore Israel back into oneness with him? So that's next week. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks that you are the almighty God, that you are Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one who desires to have an intimate relationship with every single human being that has ever existed. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious and compassionate, you are slow to anger and abounding in love. But we also know, Lord, that you are a just God. You are a holy God. One who cannot ignore sin. Who cannot ignore evil. And a time is coming when you will judge it once and for all. And the account that we just looked at here is a picture of what we'll study next week as the final judgment on evil. <clears throat> and Lord, we thank you that a day is coming when all evil will be finally dealt with and we will live in a bliss and eternal happiness with you. Never again have to worry about pain. Never again have to worry about sadness or sickness because we will be in your presence. Lord, we look forward to that day. Lord, come quickly. Take us home to be with you. We want to see you and say thank you face to face. Till then, help us to be a people that live like citizens of heaven. Because we are citizens of heaven. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.